Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios. Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Friday evening, where we continue our reflections into the Gospel of Mark. As I noted last week, in the sixth week of Ordinary Time, we were still in the first chapter of Mark. And as our luck would have it, this seventh week, which ultimately, of course, as you know, is the first Sunday of Lent, we are still in the first chapter of the Gospel of Mark. Incredibly so. I mean, this fast-paced narrative, and you would never know it, seven weeks, and we're still in the first chapter of the Gospel of Mark. It really speaks to, while it be the shortest gospel, uh, the richness and the beauty of Mark's wisdom as he records and writes his gospel. Now, it is the first Sunday of Lent, and over the past few nights, uh, within the context of Pope Francis and within the context of Theology of the Body, we have been talking about Lent, and certainly the Gospel for Sunday, we will be talking about Lent. One of the major themes that comes to us is uh, Christ's time in the wilderness. As brief and as succinct as this Gospel is for us today, nonetheless, we will be talking the stuff of the wilderness and what that means for us in our own journey of faith. I will certainly note our first reading today. We won't necessarily read it, but the first reading is talking about Noah, and I think there's a truth in the narrative of Noah that is very important for us during Lent. So, anyhow, with that, let us go ahead and jump into the Gospel of Mark. Again, brief, succinct, chapter 1, four verses, verses 12 to 15. The Spirit immediately drove Jesus out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild beasts, and the angels ministered to him. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, preaching the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Amen. A reading, my friends, that could not be more succinct. (laughs) The evangelist devotes only a few lines here to Jesus' 40 days in the wilderness. If you were to go into the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 4, verses 1 to 11, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 4, verses 1 to 13. While this reading is four verses, he devotes just two verses. Yet, if you look closely at those two verses, there is a lot there. It's sparing, but there is a lot there. So, you know, what did Jesus intend with his time in the wilderness? What was it like for him? What is the model that the Christian season of Lent is meant to imitate? Again, a closer look, we find that these few words are densely packed with content. So let's talk about this. Now, I want to first mention that before we can properly read the New Testament, we must always approach it within the great two senses that I've talked about a great deal. The literal sense, which specifically speaks to the historical context, right? The intention of the author. It gets into that first century mindset, if you will, 
and the spiritual sense. Now, the spiritual sense is, yes, it speaks to the moral compass of things, but also how each and every verse points to how Christ is the fulfillment of the prophetic thrust of the Old Testament. You've heard me talk about the word typology before. You know, what is the word typology? The Greek typus, huh? Typus is a word that literally means pattern, impression, uh, imprint, okay? Well, what does that word sound like but typewriter? Now, I know I'm dating myself to some extent by talking about a typewriter, but what is a typewriter? It is when uh, that letter of steel impresses itself upon a canvas and leaves a pattern, okay? Leaves literally an impression of what that letter is, whether it be an A, B, or C, okay? In the Old Testament, there are impressions of Christ, typus of Christ, types of Christ. So, in John 5, 39, when he says, that is our Lord, you search the scriptures because in them they bear witness to me, what is he talking about? Well, the ways in which in the Old Testament there are impressions of him, patterns of him. As Thomas Aquinas, the great saint Thomas Aquinas would speak to it, shadowy symbols of him. Uh, I think it is what Romans 5 verse 14 where Paul is writing about how Christ is a new Adam, and he says Adam is a what? Type of Christ, typus of Christ, how Adam left a pattern that points to Christ. And ultimately, Paul is talking about this because he wants us to see how Christ atones for, of course, the fall from grace. And ultimately, we can only truly understand Christ and his mission of redemption in light of the fall. So, essentially what I'm speaking to as it relates to typology is the way in which we read the Old Testament and the New Testament as one single uh, drama of salvation history. So, a typological reading of the Old Testament is attuned to distinctive rhymes in salvation history where God acts in similar, or we can say again, typical ways each time He reveals Himself and delivers His people. Uh, thus, the Father teaches us about himself through the use of things and events long familiar in the minds of his people. In short, we can say, my friends, <laughs> the Father uses old truths to instruct us about new ones. This is what Christ is doing uh, constantly throughout the gospel narrative. I love that great line from Mark Twain who says, history never repeats itself but it has a rhyme scheme. There is a continuity. So the essence of what I want us to understand this evening is when you read the old in light of the new and the new in light of the old, what you are doing is reading Scripture as not only we ought to read it, but as Christ himself was revealing it. Remember on the road to Emmaus, he was revealing himself as the what? The new Moses. All throughout Scripture, we have Christ revealing himself as the new what? David, the new temple, the new Israel, the new Solomon, the new Jonah. Why? Because he's the fulfillment of the prophetic thrust of the Old Testament. Now, why am I talking about all of this? Why am I spending so much time reflecting into this? Well, if you were to go into these two short verses, what do we have? In verses 12 to 13, but Jesus facing the same ordeal that Adam and Israel endured in the Old Testament. He is tempted by Satan among the wild beasts. 
just as the first Adam was tempted amid the beasts in paradise. Our Lord likewise retraces the steps of Israel being led into the wilderness by the Spirit and tested for 40 days as the Israelites marched in the desert for 40 years of testing. Okay, you can begin to appreciate the succinctness and the clarity to which we can better understand Christian and divine revelation in light of the old and new, read as one single drama. In the end, what we are made to see is that Jesus succeeds where Adam and Israel failed by resisting the devil and proving his filial love for the Father. This initiates an extended campaign certainly in the gospel of Mark against the demons, death, and disease throughout the gospel. So, what can be said of these few verses? Well, a lot when you read it in light of the Old Testament. I've heard some scholars speak to the gospel of Mark as a lesser gospel because it is not as long or it does not appear to be as theologically rich. Well, um, I would uh, counter that argument with the first few verses of the Gospel of Mark, where in just one verse, that is Mark 1-2, him quoting three different Old Testament passages. So right away, Mark wants us to be thinking about how Christ is the fulfillment of the promise, and that he has come to just not fulfill, but at once transform, transform into his life and his love. All of this is uh, widely important. Now, I want to get back in here to the other two verses, and then we'll circle back to the first two. We have to remember that Jesus had himself just been baptized in the Jordan uh, by the Baptist, huh? I mean, this was the outset of his ministry. I mean, he had lived a quite unremarkable life up to this point, 30 years, okay, in the background, a very important 30 years, but a 30 years that was not in public, as I've talked about it before, a 30 years where he sanctifies the importance of marriage and family life. Now, at around 30 years of age, he suddenly leaves his family. He goes to John, and what does he do? He simply lines up among all the people who are coming to confess their sins and to let themselves be immersed in the water as a sign of repentance and of a new beginning. So right from the start, my friends, Jesus sets himself in the midst of who? You and I, right? <laughs> right from the start, Jesus sets himself in the midst of the people. That was why he came. What is that great passage that comes to us from Mark 2, 17? Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, you and I, are why he came. What does he say? I came not to call the righteous but sinners. So this was his task, and that is exactly what the people were, among whom Jesus took his place at the Jordan. Sinners, sick in body and soul. And so our Lord sees this task as that of making us well again. Words, mere talking, was of no help here. Jesus needed to go to the root of the evil. That, my friends, is why he went into the wilderness, where God's Spirit drove him. I always pause on this point. Think about this. The Spirit drove him into the wilderness. You know, the wilderness is hard to endure, huh? I mean, 
The Jewish people knew that from their memory of the 40 years in the wilderness, what the wilderness was all about. All external props are removed. No entertainment, no fun, right? (laughs) Silence and solitude. You know, as I speak to silence and solitude, what is the desert? The desert is that place of utter poverty and therefore potentially of heroic trust in God. The desert speaks to the first beatitude, does it not? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Every other beatitude is hinged to that one great beatitude. I can never talk about this enough because it is so foundational to our faith. Just as the first three commandments are about loving God first, and the other commandments are tied to those first three commandments, so is this first beatitude foundational to better understand all other beatitudes, because all other beatitudes are, again, tied, hinged to this first beatitude. Why? Well, what does it mean to say we are blessed if we are poor in spirit? Well, what does the word spirit mean in the Greek? Pneuma, lung, breath. Blessed are those who long for God the same way our lungs long for air. If we have acquired that kind of disposition, we are well on our way. Remember what Jesus does not say, at least not in the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who serve the poor. Blessed are those who give alms. Blessed are those who fast. That comes later. If you are to acquire that kind of disposition and that kind of virtue and that kind of charity, you must first be poor in spirit. You must first go to the desert and understand what it means to trust in God. There's that great line that comes to us from a Jewish rabbi when he says, how easy it is for a poor man to trust in God. And what else is he to trust, huh? (laughs) And how difficult it is for a rich man to trust in God, where all of his possessions are crying out to him, trust in me. This is the great challenge we have before us in Lent, where we say no more, where we realize less is more, where we say no to this thing or that thing with a deeper understanding that in saying no to this or that, we are saying yes to God. We must discipline the flesh. We must learn the language of saying no so that we might learn the language of sonshiping God. It's interesting. If you were to go to the Greek word for mammon, it literally translates just not riches or wealth, but trust in riches. Trust in riches. So when our Lord in the Sermon on the Mount is talking about this, he wishes to highlight the importance of trust. And why? Because trust is the most concrete act and virtue of faith. It is only in light of trusting God that we can take that jump, take that leap when he calls us to do so, because we have acquired that relationship where we want, we trust him, where we say to ourselves, I cannot do this alone, but with you, I know I can do the impossible. This is what our Lord is after. So when man experiences his own barrenness, if you will, when he is most in need, then is the time of the most decisive cry. Will he accept easy? 
immediate remedies and compromise his vocation as a child of God, or, or will he wait in silence and privation, fasting from all the world has to offer for the perfect length of God's pleasure, which, oh, by the way, is represented in these 40 days. You know, in revisiting this being led by the Spirit, we don't often think that our struggles, our trials, our temptations are actually led by the Spirit. But if it is in that barrenness that we are most challenged, then yeah, sure, the Spirit can lead us to that place. Because remember what the word challenge means, provocatio, to call forth, to call out. We become a better version of ourselves the more we challenge ourselves. We build ourselves up spiritually to the the degree that we push ourselves spiritually. I mean, do we not see this in the physical realm? Huh? I've known it before. This radio studio is across the street from the most popular fitness center here in this county. Okay? Every morning, people are making sacrifices to get up and to build themselves up physically. They push themselves. They press themselves. They sweat. Why? Because they want to, well, look better, feel better, build themselves up physically so that they can get stronger. They would not build themselves up or get stronger if they are not pushing themselves. So my friends, do we challenge ourselves spiritually? Do we push ourselves? Do we accept the challenge? Do we strain like we would strain when when lifting weights? When you start talking about the spiritual life in light of the physical life and how we build ourselves up, I think we can get a window, at the very least, into what we need to do to be stronger in our Christian faith. You know, I was thinking about this the other day. For some of us, we lift weights so that in a time where we're going to have to be stronger at an unexpected time, maybe someone wants to pick a fight in a back alley, we can handle ourselves. Do we do this kind of thing spiritually? Do we build ourselves up so that at an unexpected time, when the tempest winds are blowing, we can look into the eye of the storm and defeat that storm with the peace of Christ? Can we? We have to accept the challenge, and in doing so, we will become a better person, stronger person for it. And we are, because we are children of God, and He will give us the grace necessary. So, revisiting the narrative, Jesus was tempted by Satan. You know, in addition to the outward struggle for life, for our Lord, there came this inner torment of temptation, huh? Of what did this consist? You know, nowadays, we mostly think straight away of sexual allurements and of nothing else. They are there, and they are not easy to fight against. But other temptations may strike us deeper. Those of meaninglessness and despair, of boasting, maybe being in control, and maybe the most radical temptation of all, turning away from God. But how did our Lord experience these temptations? Well, my friends, we do not know. But He did withstand them. And He did so not simply for Himself, but also, my friends, on our behalf. At the beginning, there was his fight against the temptation of the devil. In those 40 days, Jesus was fighting 
on our behalf. It was a representative struggle, so to speak. He was trying to help us not with words again, but by taking our struggle upon himself. He can heal us and help us only if he knows whereof we are made and how frail we are and what easy prey we often are for Satan the tempter. My friends, Jesus has taken up this fight for us, and he was victorious. And yes, we are called to share in this fight, because we are called to share in the victory. This is what these 40 days are about. He lives in the wilderness with the wild beasts, but they do not harm him. There is peace among them because he is at peace with God. We know from the lives of the saints that they lived in harmony with the wild beasts. We see that the angels ministered to him, another image of peace, not only with the realm of animal life, but also with the heavenly realm. Our Lord has overcome evil and the devil, and because of this, peace emanates from him. The wilderness, so to speak, has become paradise. This is the juxtaposition, is it not? Think of it. We already talked about Christ being a new Adam. Where did Adam fall? In paradise. And we have the reversal of fortune taking place. Where? But in the wilderness. Where else? But on the cross. At these places of utter desolation, utter poverty, does he atone for Adam's fall? Here again, my friends, when you apply typology, uh, deeper truths can be discovered. Consider Adam's silence in the garden. Remember what I've talked about before as it relates to the fall in Genesis 3. There was Satan speaking to Eve, and it would appear that he's only speaking to Eve, but in the Hebrew, he is addressing both of them. Right, We don't, in our English rendering of the Hebrew, have a plural for you, okay? unless you say y'all, but we don't have that, right? So Satan is speaking to both of them, but you wouldn't know that because Adam is silent in the garden. And here you have Christ in the garden of Gethsemane, crying out, atoning for Adam's silence. Just as the wood is the instrumental cause in the loss of grace, so is the wood that Christ carries on his back the instrumental cause in the restoration of grace, just as the woman comes from the side of Adam. So the new woman, the new bride, the church, comes forth in the blood and water gushing forth from the side of Christ. And so it is. If we wish to claim victory, and if we wish to share in Christ's victory, we must pass through the wilderness of our heart. We must pass through those crosses that Christ gives us, And in so doing, be mindful that these challenges are opportunities, opportunities to go deeper in our faith and opportunities to strengthen our relationship with God. Because we do not know, my friends, when the tempest winds will blow. And the only way we will be able to overcome those tempest winds is if we are firmly rooted deep in the soil of the Spirit. And only then will those winds not knock us down. Now, by way of closing thought, I wanted to make sure we touched upon the Old Testament reading. I talked about there was a very important lesson to be learned 
in the narrative of uh, Noah. Now, the movie Noah did something that while well, most movies do and most narratives do and most discussions do when talking about Noah, they placed the ark on a coastal line. But what does Scripture tell us? Noah built the ark in the middle of nowhere, in a desert. This is why he was the laughingstock. And really, it would be fair game to encourage Noah. We were talking about this the other day. To encourage Noah to take what he was building to maybe a coastal beach. Because it is there where if there was a flood, the the water can just more easily pick up the ark. But no, there he was, obedient to God, building the ark in the middle of nowhere. And this is what makes Noah's narrative for me so radical. He was the laughingstock because what he was doing made no sense. Yet what he was doing was totally and entirely setting him apart from the rest of the world. And how often, my friends, does God call us to be set apart in the same way? Let me tell you something. (laughs) What Noah was doing, he was not blending in. I think today's danger, among so many others, is to want to blend in, to not go against the current of the time. Yes, it's hard, but what did we already talk about as it relates to challenges? We must be willing to go against the current. We must be willing to be persecuted. We must be willing to be laughingstock, to go against the grain, to build an ark in the middle of nowhere, if God calls us to. And sometimes... Sometimes, my dear friends, someone who you are close to might ask you to take that ark and say, hey, it makes a little more sense to build that maybe along a beach coast, but be strong in what God has commanded you to do. If he's commanded you to build that ark in the middle of nowhere, if he has called you to be set apart in a radical way, then do it. It's interesting, earlier we were talking about being rooted in the soil of the Holy Spirit. What does the word radical mean? Well, in the Latin, uh, its root means literally root, right? So when we are radical in Jesus Christ, we are rooted in Jesus Christ. This season of Lent is about being radical in God. This season of Lent is about resisting those temptations. This season of Lent is about becoming a new creation. And if there is anything that the story of Noah teaches us, it is that. That and by being radical, we become a new creation in God. And we do so by following the pattern of Christ. Amen. And my dear friends, before we wrap up this evening with a word of prayer, I just want to continue to encourage you uh, to send me any of your questions, thoughts, comments, observations as it relates to this program. If you have any question about the Catholic faith, just not what we talked about tonight, but any night, uh, any evening, please do not hesitate to email me. I always enjoy your questions. So my email is uh, jholjmj at yahoo.com, or you can go to my website at joholcraft.org and just hit the contact link there and send your email on the way. Okay, let us close with a word of prayer in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen, and God bless you.
Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 6.30 p.m. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.